Welcome in to the Icelandic Roots Podcast. My name is Will, and it's my pleasure to facilitate our conversation today as we dive back into the world of Icelandic America to explore our history, our culture, and no less than the meaning of life. In our third episode today, Natalie and I will introduce you to another poet, one who followed in the footsteps of Julius Cowan from our last episode. This one is an American, the one and only Bill Holm, born of Minneota, Minnesota, 1943. So Natalie, what does the Icelandic Roots database tell us about Bill Holm? William John Bill Holm was an American poet, essayist, memoirist, and musician born on a farm north of Minneota, and he was Professor Emeritus of English at Southwest Minnesota State University, where he taught classes on poetry and literature until he retired in 2007. Holm was also named the McKnight Distinguished Artist of the Year in 2008, this award celebrates artists who have left a significant imprint on the culture of Minnesota. And you can find Bill Holmes' page in our database. He's listed as a famous person or a person of interest. It is quite an honor to make that list, considering all the other very famous people on it as well. Yeah. I recently noticed my oldest known relative in the database is one named Danner Mikkelidi, he is on that famous person list as well for being the person whom Denmark is named after. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, 50th great-grandfather, 50 generations back, and we have every person between him and me. That's so amazing. Wow. But I, I am myself, of, of course, not cool enough to make the famous people list, but uh, it's nice that Bill Holm has. He seems to deserve that spot. Yes. Yes, he does, both among... Icelandic community, Icelanders here too, in, in Iceland, and beyond as well. He's well known outside of the Icelandic community. Yes, but unfortunately, I didn't know about him until relatively recently. A friend of mine sent me one of his books in the mail. This book is called Eccentric Islands, and uh, it's all about these different islands that Bill has traveled to in his life. And most of the book pertains to Iceland, where he, of course, has his own family's ancestry. And so, okay, we, we must have some information on him in the, in the database as to how he's related to us, don't we? Yes, we do. As usual, I want to make this a competition between you and I and see who is more related to our featured guest. Yeah. In this case, Bill Holm. Is it <laughs> me or you? Well, you are the sixth cousin once removed. From Bill Holm. Okay. And I am his fifth cousin, no, fifth half cousin once removed. So. Ooh, that is a little tricky. How, how can we decide who wins this round? Fifth half cousin or sixth cousin once? Okay. Huh, that's tricky. I know. I, I, I want to say that relation-wise might be equal because even if mine's a generation earlier, it's still only half. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let, let's call this one a draw for now. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so I'm I'm happy to be covering Holm in this episode since in the last episode we talked about Julius Cowan, another mm -hmm. poet who was from Iceland and came to Minnesota, Dakota area. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to play a clip here of Holm reading a snippet of Cowan poetry. 
Cowan was a big influence on Holm. And uh, mm-hmm. Cowan even wrote a little poem about Holm's hometown. So you'll hear Holm, the Cowan, talking about Miniota saying, for many older Minnesota, many were ugly. They still are, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess these two both had a sense of humor. That's funny. <laughs> which is good to hear. So, you know, we called Cowan, well, Cowan was considered the poet born to keep tears at bay with his poetry. And uh, after reading just a little bit of Holmes' work, mm-hmm. I would almost suggest that Holmes would be the poet known, born to make you cry somehow <laughs> from from laughter, from satire, uh-huh. and from his reflections on on the beauty of life on Earth. Uh, oh, that's funny. But I, I guess we can let uh, the viewers decide for themselves because this episode we mainly have uh, a bunch of home readings. So our first reading will be from Holmes' book called Eccentric Islands. There's a great sequence here where he describes Iceland, its formation in geological terms and its settlement up until the point where his ancestors left the country. So here's Bill Holmes' writing. Icelanders make particularly good laboratory specimens to observe the peculiarity of human character because there are so few of them, so far away so recently come in geological or even historical terms to so profoundly empty and new a place. When human beings arrived at Ultima Thule, as the Greeks who had heard rumors but never seen it, called Iceland, about 1,200 years ago, they came as close to finding a geographical and biological blank slate, a tabula rasa, as existed on the planet. The entire fauna consisted of the arctic fox, and he was probably a transplant, following the smell of carrion from the sea, drifting into a fjord on an ice flow discharged from East Greenland. In the long summer night, the air was loud with seabirds, seasonal migrants from half a planet away, but in the winter dark, only the sarcastic raven hung around to fight the fox for the joy of picking at the blubber of dead seals and whales. No Tweety birds, because there was almost no insects and no rodents at all for them to eat. No reptiles or amphibians, thank God, say modern Icelanders. The flora, though more numerous than the fauna, was not lush. Mostly dwarf birch, grass, lichens, a few berries, and tiny wildflowers. Jorrid Sovel, say Icelanders, when they invite you into their parlors for coffee and cream cakes. Be so kind as to come in and enjoy my humble hospitality. Jorrid Sovel, said the island itself, when the handfuls of Irish monks and Norse outlaws decided to sample its delights by living there a millennium ago. It is a skinny place, biologically. The table is not heaped high with succulent morsels, but Goris Svovel anyway. Forgive my pronunciation again, thank you. Skipping ahead a little more. Iceland is young, medium-sized, 40,000 square miles, about the size of Ohio or Kentucky, and vengefully oceanic. 
Most oceanic islands erupted out of volcanic fissures deep in the sea, lava rising through salt water far from any continent. The sea so smooth and flat on its surface is corrugated underneath with vast canyons and mountain chains, ragged seams where the tectonic plates that ride over the surface of the planet come together and pull apart, leaving great rifts open to the volcanic cauldrons seething in Earth's heart. Continental islands start with fauna and flora. Oceanic islands start from scratch, as indeed the planet did itself, with nothing except the wind and bird shit which eventually carries a little life onto the cooling lava. Iceland is so newly minted by nature, so far from anywhere, and so well protected by harsh weather and heavy seas that only the bravest life forms have any hope of setting up colonies there. They arrive by chance and survive by tenacity, like the human life forms who also are recent immigrants. Okay, skipping ahead a little more. <clears throat> the Icelanders are a rigorously pruned population. Settlement began in 874. Prior to that, only a few scattered Irish monks prayed in their huts and oratories in isolated places on the coast or on nearby coastal islands. The population had reached 60,000 by the 14th century when the Black Plague thinned it to 40,000. The population recovered to 45 in 1707 when smallpox slimmed it down to 30,000. It had barely begun to rise again when in 1783 the largest volcanic eruption in the history of the country, which had already endured hundreds of sizable and satisfactorily destructive eruptions in the previous 900 years, covered vast sections of the country with, with poisonous ash, killed a few people initially, but wiped out almost the whole population of horses and sheep. The Red Cross was not delivering surplus cheese in 1783, and the massive famine in the next decades almost finished off the Icelanders. The Danes, then the colonial overlords of Iceland, offered to settle the surviving bedraggled remnants of the Icelanders in Denmark. But if you lived on your own island, how can you bear to forsake it for a mere continent? The Icelanders stayed, surely now among the poorest specimens ever to occupy any part of the planet. When another venomous volcano, Askja, erupted in northeast Iceland in 1875, killing the sheep and burying the hayfields again, my great-grandfathers gave up and moved to Minnesota, where settlers were offered 160 acres of free land and a promise of no volcanoes. Minnesota, while well acquainted with other natural miseries, is unafflicted with active volcanoes. Lucky us, eh? The shriveled breeding stock in 1800 gave birth to all of us, who are genetic Icelanders. Only 800,000 Icelanders have ever lived. With so few of them, they have made a hobby, some might call it an obsession, of keeping track of everyone's name and statistics. Any Icelander who knows his grandparents' names, or even their farm name, and all Icelanders do, can, with a little research, find thousands of relatives going back a thousand years. Modern genealogy software can shorten the process to a half hour. With a few hours extra, if you intend to print out the four or five hundred pages of your ancestors. 
What, what, what did you make of, of this reading from the book? Uh, did, did it make you want to pick up the book yourself, Natalie? Yes, yes, yes. Hearing this, hearing you read this story from Bill Holm makes me want to read more of his work. And this one in particular hit home for me because I, I'm currently in Reykjavik for another month and a half. And right. with the current volcano and the earthquakes we've had in the last six right. months, like it's really made me feel how alive this island is and mm. the way he describes, you know, the history of the island. Maybe I've heard it before, but, you know, there's so many details I forget. And just hearing his words and then thinking about how it literally, the the divide is opening up right now. It just brought it all kind of full circle. So, right, totally. Yeah. You can see that volcano out your back window, can't you? I, I can now, if I go out and walk around the block and stand on the hill, I can see it across the bay. I can see the lava burning into the air from a distance, so it's, it's surreal. Yeah, and yeah. thankfully this time it isn't enough to force everybody to leave the country or anything, no. so we're, we're lucky this time around. No, it's not catastrophic. It's, no one's in danger, so... It's not like anything our ancestors faced, but it just feels connected to the origins of this place and how powerful and how our ancestors must have felt when they experienced things like this. Yeah. Definitely. So Bill Holmes' latest book was called The Windows of Brimness, and he's referring to the house he lived in near Hafsos, where the, the windows are what the house is all about, is sort of the argument he makes in the book. He says... It's a simple house, just simple walls, but its main purpose is to hold up these magical windows, which give you this amazing view of the Icelandic sea. And I know you have an interesting uh, anecdote to tell about this house. I wanted to give you the chance to do that. Yeah, I have a I have a special connection to Brimness. I mean, when I first heard of who Bill Holm was, I was spending the summer in Hafsos as an intern from the story program. I was working in the Vestafara Setrith, the emigration museum about the Icelanders who went west right. and they had his book for sale in the in the shop so I on a slow day I opened it up and I started reading the first little bit and I was like oh I didn't realize this was a western Icelander and then he's talking about his love for Hafsos and his house and then I find out that the house that I was staying in was right across the street from Brimness and we're actually, we didn't have laundry in our house. So we were given permission to go across the street to the basement of his old house and use his washing machine. <laughs> this was after he had passed. So we couldn't yeah. eat him. And I think it was still in his family, but we were given yeah. the permission to wash our clothes using that washing machine. So I have a very clear idea of the view he's talking about. Yeah, okay. Is and it as magical as he says? It is. I mean, if you've ever been to Hafsos, you can see the fjord. And it really is an impressive ocean. Like, you got the mountains, you got this wide fjord, and you can see Drange in the distance, where Gretchen the Strong lived. Wow. Yeah, I can yeah, see why cool. he was so en enchanted by it. His house yeah. And why he would write so much about it. Right. R wrote a whole book about that house and those yeah. windows. Uh, that's really special. Yeah. 
<clears throat> well, the next readings we're going to share in the episode are a couple essays that Bill wrote about his home in Minneota, Minnesota. So he describes what it's like growing up uh, surrounded by immigrants from all kinds of countries, uh, including a bunch of Icelanders who've settled in this sort of random place in the middle of Minnesota uh, to make their home. And he describes what that's like. So uh, let's let's give him a chance to tell you about that. Icelanders, box elders, soybeans, and poets. The day before leaving eastern Virginia, I called the telephone company to have my phone disconnected and the bill forwarded to Minneota, Minnesota. I talked to a good-humored woman and gave her the address. There was a pause. No street? No number? None. She asked me to repeat and spell the address. I did. Another pause. You're putting me on, man. Is that a real place? It is indeed, a place in southwestern Minnesota. In fact, I was born on a farm eight miles north of Minneota, Minnesota, where my Icelandic grandfather, Svein, homesteaded in about 1880. The house sat on a hill, surrounded by trees countable on one hand's fingers, and miles of prairie rolling off towards South Dakota. My mother decided I would read books and die without calluses on my hands. But my father would have preferred a son who took slightly more than my minimal interest in cultivating soybeans and repairing combines. At 18, what I wanted most to see in this world was the Miniota city limits receding for the last time in the rear-view mirror of an automobile driving east to New York, Boston, Washington, where men didn't spit snooze into brass spittoons, wore suits instead of clean bib overalls on Saturday night, where women did not wear shapeless print dresses or discuss egg prices in the newest hot dish recipe, but were elegant and witty with painted eyebrows and long black gowns. By gradual steps, I made my way east, through college, graduate school, and into a teaching job next to the Atlantic Ocean, as far east as American consciousness moves. However, a strange thing happened. In addition to the urban culture of martinis and pâté, conversation about Italian movies and liberal politics, I found empty-hearted rootlessness, books used as blunt instruments, a sneering disbelief that hayseed farmers had souls, much less intellects. So I began, much to the skeptical amusement of Easterners I knew, to tell Miniota stories about fierce winters, eccentric old Icelanders done in by broken hearts, treeless wildflower-covered hills in Lincoln County, pioneer graveyards with peculiar names in Norwegian, Polish, Belgian, or Icelandic, pitching out a ripe hoghouse, soaking tired bones in the clawfoot bathtub, country school with brass bell, glass-doored oak bookcase, a half-mooned outhouse, and most of all, the rich variety of characters in small towns, whom one could know, tolerate, and forgive in ways not available to the guarded privacy of the big city. As my mother used to say, Midiota is just like that book by Grace Meticulous, Peyton Place, only better. The stories were true, and you knew all the actors. I mean not to write my autobiography, but to use myself as example, duplicated many times in southwestern Minnesota, of attempted escape from these unlikely prairies, 
and the discovery, usually after years passing, that for better or worse, you belong in a place and grow out of its black soil like a cornstalk. Miniota was a jumble of accents and languages when I grew up there in the 40s. Burry Icelandic with trilled consonants, Norwegian nasal A's, flat guttural Flemish. You could drive 10 miles and hear Polish, German, and Swedish. Northern Europe was here, compressed into a thinly peopled county smack in the middle of the American continent. Strangers complained about the prairie's boring monotony, mile after mile of flat farm fields. But to a native, even a single section of land was a microcosm of the continent. A cornfield, cultivated, civilized, straight and square, next to a stony pasture full of those strange visitors from another planet, cows. Next to that, a rolling gully or cattail slough, and if you were lucky, a coffee-colored river with its dark willow, cottonwood, and box elder grove along the bank. Then a blue-booming flax field stretching up to meet the, that intimidating, magnificent sky full of tornadoes, thunderstorms, stars clear as sword points heading toward Earth on summer nights. Though others imagined them small, the people were sometimes passionate and mercurial as that sky above them. I learned to love poetry from one of those, an immigrant Icelandic carpenter named Einar Hallgrimsson. Einar was a bachelor, inside a school only a year or two of his life, I suppose, but nevertheless literate and well-read in several languages, and capable of turning an elegant phrase into at least Icelandic and English. He and my father loved to drink whiskey and argue, and as a boy of perhaps ten, I often tagged along with them to Einar's magical house. He built it in an alley behind the big store, and lined every wall space with bookshelves from floor to ceiling. Even in the bathroom, you meditated at eye level with Gotha, Emerson, Icelandic sagas, and the National Geographic from 1913 to 1921. Einar might say in his old country voice, your father and I are going to discuss business in the kitchen. Now you sit here in my green chair and read some poems. When you're done, I'll come read one for you. The business was, of course, a pint of whiskey, satirical stories, and maybe an argument about Republican obtuseness or Lutheran narrow-mindedness. When the whiskey was done, Einar lumbered back into the living room, moved me out of his green chair, and read, perhaps, The Shooting of Dan McGrew, a Shakespeare sonnet, Longfellow's village blacksmith, or even an old Viking poem in Icelandic. He did not discriminate among these poems, but loved them all. They were the air he breathed, and went into every wood cabinet he ever built. I met few college professors as intelligent designer. A while ago, Valdemar Bjornsson, an escaped and distinguished Miniota Icelander of the last generation, sent me a letter that my great-uncle John Holm wrote in 1922 to Valdemar's father, Gunnar, the founder of Miniota's newspaper. It is always strange to read other people's mail, even if they are dead. This conversation was probably not meant to be overheard, but in reading it I had a weird sense, not of violating privacy, but that I had written the letter myself, and that Uncle John, or his shade, had been writing my poems for years. He was born Gudjin Johannesson in Iceland and emigrated with his three brothers to Minnesota. 
One brother, my grandfather Svein, homesteaded. Two went to Bellingham, Washington, grew apples and fished. John went to college, became the first educated home, and worked as a journalist and author. He wrote campaign biographies, magazine articles, and was a regular correspondent for a New York newspaper. In his letter, he tips off the small-town editor on selling articles, reminisces about Icelanders he knew on the East Coast, asks about his old girlfriend in Minneota, who, perish the thought, married a Norwegian. Finally, he discusses his current home, New York. Quote, I wish I could get out of this damned town and never see it again. It is the only spot I ever struck in the United States that I don't like. I'm going to sell out soon and move over to Jersey or some spot in Connecticut. What I want to do is buy a little farm. I am hankering a good deal to visit my old haunts again, especially Miniota and the old farm, and sooner or later I will get there. I have changed very little except that I am getting gray, and so damned old that I have begun to wear suspenders again, but I have not yet taken to golf. I reckon that will be the next step. He died a year or two later in Flushing, Long Island, having never seen Miniota or his old farm again. When I finished reading his 55-year-old letter, I drove eight miles north of Miniota to make sure the farm was still there. Icelandic Roots invites you to join our second annual Summer Fitness Challenge. This virtual challenge starts on June 12th and runs for eight weeks until August 7th, and it's open to anyone who wants to join in the fun. Participants can walk, run, do yoga, any type of fitness activity counts. You can choose between two beautiful routes, the ring road around all of Iceland or the Golden Circle. Both routes will feature virtual milestones so you can learn about interesting places in Iceland, connect with the history, culture, and see majestic photos of the landscape. Participation is open to everyone. You don't need to be an Icelandic Roots member or be Icelandic to participate. And you can join on your own or be part of a team. It's just a fun way to get family and friends to engage in physical activity while enjoying Iceland virtually. Your support helps us with our mission to preserve, promote, and educate people about Icelandic heritage, culture, and language. The participation fee is $20 US per person and covers the cost of the program and supports our community grants and scholarships. For more information on how to sign up, please go to our website, www.icelandicroots.com. Information will be available in early May. Or you can subscribe to our blog and you'll be the first to know about any new announcements. Hope to see you there. Grandma Raffneson. The following essay was excerpted from The Heart Can Be Filled Anywhere on Earth, 1996. What gives any of us the confidence to assume that others will love us, or at least treat us civilly? In Minneota, Minnesota, and in your neighborhood too, that confidence was often born of the experience of unconditional love from the old. The ones who valued us and fed us simply because we were children. 
I was an only child, born to parents who, by early middle age, had given up hope of having one. They were affectionate people who had been until that time deprived by luck and circumstance of at least one avenue for that affection. My arrival provided it. Yet babysitters inspired no fear. I longed for my parents to go off to poker games or dances at ballrooms with names like Showboat, Fiesta, Blue Moon, Valhalla. The world seemed full of kind old ladies, often born in Iceland, who baked cakes and bread, kept depression glass bowls well stocked with peppermints or chocolates, and lived in houses that smelled of mothballs, powdered sugar, cold cream, and medicine. My favorite was Sigriona Eyjolfsdatter, though I neither called her that, nor had at the time any idea that it was her name. She was Grandma Raffneson. I thought Grandma, her first and only name, and couldn't imagine anyone calling her anything else. She had nine children of her own, and though none were so prolific as their mother, they nevertheless managed to provide her with fifty or sixty blood-grandchildren by the end of the 1940s. But she was insatiable for grandmotherhood, and every child in town called her grandma, whether they were Icelanders or relatives or not. Grandmother, not only the Rapnesons, but of the universe. <laughs> she was a small, round woman, and though I suppose she owned dentures, she never wore them. With her O-shaped mouth, she hummed and whistled to herself continually, sometimes sucking in her breath for a yo the Icelandic yes. I remember asking her now and then what she was humming, but the only answer I ever got was, oh, it's nothing, followed by another meditative in-sucking of breath, a yo or two, then a resumption of the tune. Even then, a little deaf, she was selective in choosing either to hear or not to be pestered about something so unimportant as the name of the tune. Her internal and automatic humming functioned like the purring of a cat to calm both the hummer and any child nervous or silly enough to pay much attention to it. That hum seemed not so much music as noises the sun makes coming up and going down, or the planets turning on its axis in space. While she hummed, she knitted, crocheted, or tatted. Her hands were never without needles or hooks in them, her lap covered by a half-finished piece of something. I knew even as a small boy that Grandma did not think in English, and when you asked her anything which needed some response, the question disappeared first down into the dark well of Icelandic, then the language bucket rolled back up toward daylight, picking up enough English for an answer. This hesitation seemed normal to me as a child. Everyone Grandma's age was born somewhere unimaginably far away, and part of their consciousness hadn't moved all the way to Minneota yet. Probably I thought that was what it meant to be old in America. To translate every sentence twice, to hum in a foreign language, what did I know? Grandma Raffneson neither spoke about nor made a point about being an Icelander to the children dropped off at her house. That would have been ridiculous as a bear regaling you with the pleasures and mysteries of bareness. Some things simply are. They needn't be fussed about. By 1950, most of her grandchildren were half something else. German, Belgian, Polish, Norwegian. God's plenty of varieties. But whatever the mixture, 
they shared this common denominator. They were children, therefore in need of being fed, amused, calmed, tucked in, hummed at, trained to join the eternal procession of parenthood themselves. She was a genius at keeping children quiet with endless tricks and games tucked into those sleeves of her old lady print dresses. You needn't need toys. She taught children the usefulness of their own bodies as sources of pleasure and humor. Think of it. Ten toes and ten fingers, all capable of wiggling. And noses and ears, all free. Imagine the aristocratic generosity of nature. Children needed neither Nintendo nor any other expensive electronic gadgetry as long as they had a body, an imagination, and a sense of humor. The exact games have slid away from my memory. They involved counting, naming, patting, touching, and chuckling. I do remember the rules for Lengavitleza, the long craziness, an Icelandic card game for children whose name is an understatement. Icelanders, unlike Norwegians, did not regard card playing as an instrument for your personal delivery into the devil's clutches. Civilized people passed their time by playing cards, waiting for winter to end or political arguments to begin, whichever came first. Children learned rudimentary card games, suits, tricks, counting, and a little strategy, so that if adults were drunk or indisposed, they could be summoned without fuss to fill a fourth chair. With a dime store pack of cards, you could defeat boredom, solitaire for introverts, rummy or cribbage for couples, whist or pinochle after dinner at family gatherings, and langevitleza for children, the crazy and the feeble-minded. I do remember the rules for langevitleza. Take a bunch of cards, preferably from old decks with fewer than 52 cards that would be otherwise thrown away. The more cards, the better, or worse, depending on your patience for the craziness. Divide the cards in half, show a card, it's a 7, here's mine, it's a 10, I win the trick. Put the pair on the bottom of your pile. Show another card, the queen, here's mine, it's a deuce, you win. Continue. The game ends when one player has all the cards. There is some difference of opinion as to whether any game of Langavitleza played anywhere on earth has ever in fact ended. Usually sleep calls a truce. Before climbing alongside Grandma under the warm quilts to be once and for all hummed into the world of dreams, I saw a wonder that fascinated me as a child and whose image remains bolted in my memory. Her hair. Before last prayers, she took down her hair to comb it. Like most women of her generation from the old country, I think she died without ever having a haircut. Instead, piling her long gray hair on top of her head every morning, taking it down every night, combing it while she hummed. It fell all the way to the linoleum. I first saw her hair in its seventies. By the time of her death, it was over a century long. I always left Grandma Raffneson with regret, though my own house was equally full of affection and attention. She seemed to inhabit another world, without school, farm work, newspapers, or even weather, a timeless world of enormous age and innocence, without the complications of middle-aged life. However much the middle-aged loved you, they still lived in a world made sticky by money, labor, marriages, politics, gossip, the necessity of adult privacy. Grandma aged past all of that. 
her whole world inhabited by children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Aside from knitting and humming, I think nothing else interested her. Wars, depressions, scandals seemed not of much grand consequence, so long as her numberless brood stayed safe from danger. What did I learn from Sigariona Rafnison? What do any of us learn from her, by whatever name we have known her? The rules of a silly card game whose secret end is boredom and oblivion? A childhood prayer in a foreign language understood by almost nobody still alive? An aural memory of an unnamed tune hummed into the ear as if through a half-century of gauze? Most important, we inherit the interior confidence that the universe itself is safe for us. That if we don't close ourselves away through fear, the currents of simple love, kindness, civility will find us out, feed us cookies, and tuck us in. In Grandma Raffneson's world, no child was a stranger. Now, even if years of simply staying alive in a sometimes difficult brutal world try to poison us with fear and suspicion, some core of our inner life remains safe, even buoyant. That core will not go away. It is tied to the soul with a yard of fine tatting. So, yeah, it sounds like he really enjoyed his childhood, um, but like most of us, he wanted to get away from his hometown, at least for a while. Um, yeah. But what a, what a fascinating place, and I, I certainly do appreciate the the argument he makes for big city folk who might not understand the beautiful aspects of it. But what a fascinating place, you know, just just knowing there are so many people around who speak so many different languages. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not just the stereotypical small town, whatever. If someone wants to think it's not full of intellectuals, as as Holmes says. Yeah, that's so true. I think that's similar of some of the other. Icelandic settlements as well. You know, there'd be other uh, groups of immigrants coming from different countries and bringing different knowledge and stories with them. And it's not as uh, it's not as quiet or boring as some people might assume. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Mr. Holm, for helping us understand that. And uh, to end, we've got a, a couple. A couple things. He's got a, a series of three poems here we'll play next. So, okay, I, I think this fits what he describes as this free verse sort of poetry. And in his Eccentric Island book, he explains a lot how this type of poetry is not the typical stuff of, of Icelandic poetry. Um, he describes sort of being made fun of by a lot of Icelandic poets who traditionally, it seems, uh, subscribe to a model of poetry that includes rigorous rules like mm. rhyming rules and syllable rules and structure mm -hmm. um and so when he tells people that he's like a free verse poet uh people kind of roll their eyes at him sometimes <laughs> and, oh. uh, it's funny how he describes it in his book but he, he tells this to someone yeah i'm a free verse poet and this guy's like oh gosh so is my son and uh we're, <laughs> we're so disappointed in him <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, there's no doubting that this is beautiful poetry, so uh, we, mm -hmm. we can play a, a couple examples of that next. Great. An Icelandic woman visits Miniota. Round barn. 
She and I go to an old round barn by the river. The barn is full of the smell of old hay. Wind whistles through missing shingles in the high dome. Iron stalls are empty now. We see hoofprints on black dirt, made by cattle long since dead and eaten. From a nail she takes down a horse harness, leather dried and cracked. From Iceland, she says, and caresses it. We walk into the empty hayloft, fifty feet high, shaped like a cathedral dome. The last sunlight blown into the holes in the dome by prairie winds shines the floor like a polished ballroom. I walk under the dome, open my mouth, and sing an old Italian song about the lips of Lola, the color of cherries. The sound rolls around the dome and grows. It comes back to me transformed into horses neighing. Icelandic Music in Totten, Minnesota She and I go out to a noisy farmer's bar on Saturday night. One old Icelander, blind drunk now, awe-struck at this beautiful woman, comes up to talk to her. Embarrassed by his own drunkenness, he says everything wrong. <laughs> hey, Billy, who's this one? Half the time you got something black-haired who never says a word. She leans close to his ear, speaks in Icelandic to me. He can remember nothing but an old vulgar song men sing when horses pull them home, half-conscious in the back of a wagon. The horse plods down the gravel road. The broken voice rises through the dark of the wagon floor. I was so drunk I couldn't tell day from night. It's his father's voice, sixty years ago. When the yellow-haired woman laughs again, he hears his mother putting horses away. Icelandic Graveyard A woman and I come to an old Icelandic graveyard on a windy, treeless hill in Lincoln County. She has never been there, but sees her own name on every tombstone. Sometimes she died an old lady, surrounded by children, like petals around a flower's center. Sometimes she died a child who couldn't talk yet, without God's water on her hairless head. Sometimes her name is spelled right, sometimes not. It is a good thing to die so many times, to feel this often the death shudder in the bones, so that now muscles are so practiced at it, they do it with a dancer's delicate grace. To end, uh, we normally end with a song. But uh, in this case, we found a recording of Bill reading one of his poems about the ocean. And uh, this comes from a really great 30-minute long PBS documentary called The Windows of Brimness, which is also the name of his last book. Uh, we'll include a link to this documentary in our episode description here if you want to check it out because it's great and you'll get to see, see Bill for yourself and also hear people talking about him after his passing. Um, but uh, of all his poetry, I, I was trying to decide which one we should leave the, the viewers with here. Mm -hmm. And I like this one about the ocean. Uh, I think it 
encapsulates what I'm understanding is Bill's uh, sort of dark sense of humor, yeah. but also uh, like a, a positivity uh, that I find really, really kind of nice. Okay. So uh, <laughs> I guess we'll let, we'll let you all decide what you think of this last poem. But thank you, as always, for listening. And thank you to Lindy Vapnafjord for giving us our theme song, Give Some Love, which you heard at the beginning. And thanks to Beth Waterhouse for sending me the copy of Bill's book. And thank you to all you Icelandic rooters out there. Don't forget to follow along on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, and at our website, icelandicroots.com. Tak fyrra frendemin. The sea eats what it pleases. If you turn your back to the ocean, do you think the tide will not find you if it decides to rise a little higher than usual? To swallow an extra helping of gravel? To suck on your bones to clean its palate? The sea eats what it pleases, whether you face it or give it your back. No use having opinions about this. But the sea does not hate you, or imagine that you have wounded it with your avarice. You cannot blaspheme the honor of water, or insult the tide for tasting of salt. Only humans, so newly risen from fish, imagine drowning each other for reasons. <laughs>